Oh, right on. So, yeah, it's like a uh, yeah, true crime, but for spiritual matters. Great. <laughs> it's a true theology podcast, as they say. Ooh, that's a genre <laughs> I could get on board with. True theology. No, no, uh, true heresy podcast. Even better. This week on True Heresies, Arian doesn't think Jesus is the son of God. <laughs> Next week, Pelagian says you can work your way to heaven. Tune in to True Heresies. The commercial just uh, features uh, St. Nick punching Arius out. Is that and over and over again? The next 30 seconds of St. Nicholas punching Arius. <laughs> it's, the, of course, the only action in the episode, and of course they showed it in the trailer. Yeah. Spoilers, come on. What they but you don't know when it's going to happen. Oh, the Council happen. of Nicaea went off? Oh, come on. Now the hog. You need to hold that back. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And I'm not sure how much we will cut out, but we did spend the last probably 10 minutes or so discussing 433 by good old Johnny Cage. And anyway, it was good material. We'll see how much remains. Uh, I mean, but there's not many things you can talk about about nothing. It is difficult to fill things out. This is not wrong, uh, considering it, it can be performed by... Uh, literally any instrument, uh, you know, it's it's quite the ver- it's quite the versatile tune, um, you know, to, to add to your re- re- repertoire. It's kind of like for a musician, I assume, it's sort of like putting Microsoft Office on your resume. It's like, well, of, of course you do Microsoft Office. It's like, oh yeah, and I can also play 433. Uh, just you know, as a as a side note, you just kind of can can slap it on there to get to you know the round four bullet points or whatever uh, instead of the weird three. Um, exactly. Uh, but moving right along. Sam, what are you drinking right now? Well, the um, the weather is starting to change from lovely warm fall to frozen wasteland. And so it's also kind of late at night and I was very sleepy. So I made a cup of green tea, which will help the little bit of caffeine and it will help me focus so I don't zone out while Brevin's giving his summary and um, also keep me warm. So it's all around good. All right. Well, I will. I, I, I'm also in the tea game, uh, but I have some some honey ginger tea. And uh, it, you know, it just goes right to your stomach and just sits there in a big old puddle of warmth. It's pretty great. Uh, Steven, how about yourself? I'm sorry, I'm alone to center here. I am uh, almost done with uh, one of my batches of homebrew. So uh, I have a nice imperial stout that um, mm. there was a bit of a, a miraculous like uh, five loaves, two fish sort of situation where I started out with a gallon or with a recipe for one gallon, somehow ended up with two gallons and assumed that it was going to be therefore awful. It actually turned out pretty good. Nice. What the uh, ABV mm-hmm. end up? Praise be. I have no idea. I forgot to take gravity. Ah, fair enough. Yeah, my bad. Oh, oh that's good. So you could be real so I could by the be end of this. Absolutely wasted, or uh, just feeling pleasant buzz. I'm guessing it's gonna be the pleasant buzz. This one isn't super alcoholic from previous tastes. Yeah, I actually had sort of on the homebrew front, just very briefly. I I had sort of a positive uh, experience, which is just ordering. I think it was. I forget which specific brand of of Trader Joe's. Uh, IPA it, it was, but having it and tasting it, and I was like, huh, I've made better than this. And it's like, oh, that's like the first time that I've, that I've like, you know, b- besides like, you know, Budweiser or something that's, you know, that's just water garbage. Uh, and actually like having a beer and be like, oh, like I, I could actually homebrew like 
at a higher level than this. That's so that was fun. Uh, how's 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 yours compare, uh, Stephen? Like the flavor? Uh, yeah, actually, like I said, surprisingly good. Imperial stouts are difficult to get down, and so I wouldn't. I don't think I would stack this up against pretty much any professional imperial imperial stout that I've had. But I mean, it's better than some beers that I've had, and it's one that I unironically enjoy. There you go. That is all that you want is is you want to be able to you know work with your hands. You want to be able to see the results of your labor come into reality. Uh, but the problem is a lot of people don't do that. And that's our next chapter from Ideas Have Consequences. Chapter 6 and Chapter 7 we'll be covering today. Uh, the, and those chapters are The Spoiled Child Psychology and The Last Metaphysical Right. Uh, I'll be covering the first one. Sam will be covering the second. Uh, yeah, so let's just hop right into it. In this uh, chapter, the title basically says it all. But I will go ahead and read the opening paragraph, quote, having been taught for four centuries, more or less, that his redemption lies th through the conquest of nature, man expects his heaven to be spatial and temporal, and beholding all things through the great stereopticon, he expects redemption to be easy of attainment. Only by these facts can we explain the spoiled child psychology of the urban masses. The scientists have given him the impression there is nothing he cannot know. The false propagandists have told him there is nothing he cannot have. Since the prime objective of the latter is to appease, he has received concessions at enough points to think he may obtain what he wishes through complaints and demands. This is but another phase of the rule of desire. And so he's very much going off here on the urban masses, uh, somewhat fittingly uh, in his role as sort of a uh, quasi-agrarian Southern type. Uh, and he says that for these urban people who interact in this environment where it's all goods and services, where everything just sort of seems to work, where progress seems automatic and without cost and without question, that things like payment seems like an imposition, that you deserve things, that science with its great advancements owes you a living. And so these urban dwellers, like our good friend Sam, are like heathens. They, they, they haven't had the opportunity for salvation because for them, they just, that's just how they uh, think things are. Uh, Sam, you have Excuse me. No, just <laughs> just the nerve. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, I'm not saying he's wrong, but the nerve. <laughs> uh, living in a city with the whole giant thing moving around you, much like a machine, leads you to think that all of society, all of civilization, works like a machine, and that mere tinkering of the experts can solve your problems, and that if we just do, you know, the right technological fixes push the miracle buttons, as it were, uh, then everything would be fine and we could live in comfort. But, Weaver notes, comfort does not correlate with civilizational achievement. Comfort is not culture. The middle class, which he says is moderate in all things, including virtue, I think he got that from Nietzsche, uh, but really the secret for success in this life is hope and perseverance through to the next, which he sees that the modern urban society of America that he's talking about sorely lacks. He then goes a little bit into Plato and Aristotle. It's fairly cursory, um, but basically he thinks that, you know, he's a Plato guy. He thinks that we need to have the abstract and objective forms to guide us and orient everything around us, whereas Aristotle makes too many concessions to the here and now. It, it's too physical. It's too in the world. Uh, and he has a line, uh, quote, whereas Plato built the cathedrals of England, Aristotle built the manor houses. Uh, I have some things to say about that, but moving on. Uh, in his estimation, in our modern world, everything has become a job. There's no room for virtue in it. Not even things that historically have virtue, like heroism, being a soldier. Now it's reduced merely to a function, to a job. And he sees this as a danger in the world that's shaping immediately post-World War II. And you remember, he's writing this in 48 or before. And this is the U.S. versus 
the USSR. And the US is this decadent force uh, with lots of money, but as he notes, or as he says, a spoiled child versus the USSR. And he says, quote, we see before us the paradox of materialist Russia expanding by the irresistible force of an idea, while the United States, which supposedly has the heritage of values and ideals, frantically throws up barricades of money around the globe, end quote. And he's not that far off, all things considered, in terms of how history went, although he slightly overestimated uh, the Soviet Union. But then again, the outcome was unclear for quite a long time, so he can hardly be blamed for that. Uh, he then concludes the chapter just ranting still about how democratic productivity, you know, the increase in that is attached to a democratic appetite, to democratic consumption, that there's no limits, that all these people, they just want stuff and comfort. They're not interested in the higher things and ideals. And all this inspires a hatred of discipline and those that appear to have discipline, people who work harder than others and gain more because of it, that any advancement or expertise, things like that are intrinsically disliked because they suggest a, you know, a orientation towards something higher that can't be tolerated. To summarize this whole chapter, he's basically just grumbling about the kids these days and them wanting all the stuff without having to pay for it. And uh, with that, I believe we're on to chapter seven, where he believes he might have a possible way out of that. Does this make him the OG uh, participation trophy ranter? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, 48 is pretty early for that, I feel like. I mean, hey, he was ahead of his time. Yeah, w once we get to uh, the end of this book, so maybe next time, um, we definitely need to go through the forward to the book, which really does a, a good job of laying out, I think, where we've started to just in our own read through where Weaver just is sort of like has some good things, has a mix of good and bad and other places where he's just totally off or just, you know, boring. So, so, so anyway, I'm looking forward to the full wrap up, um, but that is not mm. this episode. So uh, to Sam. Yeah. So he says at the beginning of chapter seven, the last metaphysical right, that he's going to be um, spending the rest of the book presenting solutions to all these problems that he's presented. And before he presents his solutions, he makes two main postulates. First, that man can know, and second, that man can will. Um, he says that the greatest sin of man is our, right now is our hysterical optimism. And we're, we're optimistic about our progress and about our position in history, and we're unable to even comprehend the idea that things might have been better in a previous time. And so this gives us an inability to see full a true perspective. And in order to get out of this, we must be able to confess that ideals have indeed been violated, which requires, of course, ideals um, and the ability to uh, reason in terms of metaphysics. His solution, or one part of his solution, is virtue, needing to cultivate a virtue within people, but that can't be taught directly. Um, and so in order to teach this, he goes on this elaborate um, path of arriving at virtue. The first step in this path is reinstating dualism which obviously very platonic. Again, he's going back to his Plato over Aristotle um, and emphasizing the metaphysical form. Um, part of this reinstatement needs to be the uh, breaking down the, the um, connection between what is and what is right, uh, affirming the fact that what is may not actually be what is right. This assertion alone destroys both utilitarianism and pragmatism um, in his eyes, which it's quite forceful. Those values are based. Those um, ethics are based entirely on the value of something and the and the uh, practical value of being able to use that thing. However, um, dualism does not. He then goes into his main argument for the chapter that private property is the last metaphysical right remaining. It's metaphysical because the value of property is not entirely dependent on its usefulness. 
the, the nature of property rests on itself, on the hisness of the object being possessed by another. And that distances it from value, utility and value. Now he, he's clear to say that he's not talking about financial capital when he refers to property. That's a completely different uh, concept. And throughout the chapter, he attacked, as he has throughout the book, he attacks the modern capitalist um, global trading network as being completely against the main ideals of private property. He notes, um, while he's talking about financial capital, that not only is it antithetical to private property, um, as he understands it, but also it's easier for the government to seize property when it has been ag aggregated by the financial um, capital institutions, which is nice. A nice little jab there. The proper orientation of property is distributed ownership to all people in small properties. Uh, again, harking back to more of an agrarian, um, small community idea and uh, combating the idea of the city that he talks about in chapter six. Uh, property is the last domain of privacy. We don't need to give a rational justification for why our property should be private nowadays. Even though that privacy is being infringed upon, there's still some semblance that that area, that a domain should be private to the person who owns it. Um, the the um, exaltation of privacy is inherently opposed to government control. And here he looks at Thoreau and Walt Whitman, who in seeking privacy, find themselves uh, actively protesting the government. He also makes it. Um, he also makes the observation that a liberal arts institution, a college, that stays private is more successful in its ideals. And there you hear all of the Hillsdale people shout um, in uh, affirmation. Uh, he talks about how private property trains virtue. It's antithetical to sloth. It's pro-agency, and it causes people to be intentional, all of which are necessary in order to become a virtuous person. And again, going back to what you talked about earlier in the chapter, all of which are indirectly training a person in virtue. By necessity of the, of the privateness of the property, um, people become virtuous, apparently. Uh, this property is dishonored by inflation. Uh, so he's looking at this from in a post-World War environment, but he's talking about, he sees how inflation undoes everything. It undoes even charity. And he looks back to um, both France um, after the French Revolution and a little bit of Germany as well. It's how inflation it devalues property. It causes people to not value it at all, which leads to the collapse of society. Ultimately, money does not carry the same weight as property. Uh, point he makes on page uh, 128, which I thought was very interesting. This distinction between uh, capital or being able to hold money to get things and quality and valuable things that you have made with your own hands. Um, we've undone. We, we've undone and neglected the concept of quality things, and as a result, value is entirely elusive. His example to this is housing. That um, we don't create quality housing anymore, and it's become much more of a use a useful thing of just putting somebody under a roof instead of building a home. It's this great um, line that intention has been replaced by extension, which I, I just love. Um, modern capitalism distorts the true metaphysical nature of property by treating everything as pieces and trinkets to be traded, um, and thus ignoring the value inherent in those things themselves. Without property, um, and without the value found in that property, people hand themselves over to the only other thing they can find of value, which is political control. They're much more comfortable with it. And he looks to Europe um, in the decades before the writing of this book, so the 1920s, 1930s, as an example of this. Fanaticism seems like a reasonable answer 
when you aren't pursuing something or holding something of true value outside of it. In order to return to all the metaphysical rights that we need in order to live a good life, we need to start with a right. And property is the only one that we really have in the modern world to start with. And that's how he concludes chapter seven, and we'll see what he goes into chapter eight uh, next. But yeah, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. There was a lot I liked in this chapter, a lot that was, I think, a little extreme, but yeah, good. I would love to see him and McIlchrist duke it out, um, which, to be fair, a lot of the, the writers um, that I've seen, Neil, Neil Postman in particular comes to mind, uh, do seem to be leaning more into the idealism slash just anti-McGilchrist uh, thought. Uh, uh, Postman really liked the written word. Um, he thought that that was kind of the, uh, going to be our salvation is if we can get things back into the medium of the book rather than, or the book or the article rather than the um, uh, the, the visual uh, rather than the television. Um, so I mean, McGilchrist is definitely in the minority camp with uh, ten, the, the tangible things being superior, um, at least from what I, what I can tell. But I'd still like to see him and Weaver duke it out. Huh. See, I thought Weaver in this chapter more than the ones before it, he really he aligns himself more with McGillicris because he's saying that that um here I had a thought here when I was reading it and I didn't write it down. But is he, it like he's the, saying well he's saying that people need to be able to ascertain the entire whole and the entire um what the thing in and of itself is. You can only see that in the con in its context as of the value that that thing has. You can't just look at the thing itself and calculate the value. Fair point. I think I was thinking more regards to his emphasizing Plato over Aristotle, emphasizing idealism mm. over um, I realism or tangibility or uh, it, 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 putting a, an emphasis on this abstract idea that we should be uh, striving for. Although McGilchrist might very well just respond, yeah, that's like, I'm not saying idealism is a bad thing. I'm saying idealism out of a context is a bad thing. And so maybe they would actually be completely in agreement. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's also it, it, at a certain point, it gets difficult to apply McGillicrist. So I'm not sure if it necessarily breaks along like this argument doesn't necessarily break along firm right left brain lines. That, that's like, very fair. Because like he's, he's talking, I mean, he's making a baseline assertion of virtue ethics here. And I don't know, my, my opinion on virtue ethics is that they're like the right and left, like working in like perfect tandem. And indeed, that involves exalting the left hemisphere to quite a degree because it involves a bit of calculation and assessment of the situation. So. Now, on that, I do agree. I, I am intrigued for all of his bashing on Aristotle. He is he does seem to be falling into the virtue ethics Aristotle's camp, uh, including that private property makes one virtuous, that helps inculcate the virtues. And that is very much in keeping with Aristotle's view that only the landowning gentry uh, Athenian can be virtuous, uh, the slaves and the barbarians, uh, and of course the women, uh, can, cannot be. Um, so I, I was a little surprised to see Weaver lean that hard into private property being kind of our saving grace. Although, to be fair, lest we, lest we make a straw man of him, I think he was more saying that is, the, that is the saving grace that our society still kind of takes as a given, that private property mm -hmm. is still a thing, not that yes. that's the only thing that yes. should be given. And that's the end of the chapter. He's like, look, we, we got to start somewhere. And private property is probably the, the, our best plan, place to start because we can, even with the, even with the liberals and even the progressives agree that this, there is something here, even if it's been distorted, we can still take a thing of value and say this is valuable and say, yes, it is a value. And that's a good place to start.
Yep, that's a fair point. I think there's a valuable angle to the whole conversation, which is just to sort of overlay. It's both a just a history of philosophical thought, but also theological thought. I'm thinking particularly Reformation and post, mostly drawing on um, mostly drawing on McGilchrist's narrative, but also on Charles Taylor's just a little bit about essentially where you think the last line of defenses or the essential line of defenses. And that will determine, I guess, how far back you go and the philosophy in which you ground your um, your argument. That was poorly articulated. Let me try to oh. explain. That is to say that ideas have consequences. From what I know, he is is not a Catholic uh, in particular. That's, that's sort of the most relevant fact that I can think of because his philosophy is very Platonic or at least on face value whether or not he actually is interpreting plato correctly is uh, is a separate thing i had to argue with my uncle about this uh but the the point is his his whole idea of the ideal forms being the essential thing behind everything that we're reaching towards now there's in that thought an essential separation in between this world and the ideal world there is less room in that articulation for incarnation, for the for to for those things to exist really in the world, basically fully. And when you're talking about Postman and the and the written word, what I'm seeing is uh, Weaver and Postman and uh, McIntyre and mm-hmm. McGilchrist all falling on this line of the, the McGilchrist point from incarnation to rescuing the word from the world, and then the word becoming the only thing that's even further out there. And that's sort of like the return to the platonic from the incarnate uh, from the incarnational uh view of the world that these different authors are sort of falling in and weaver does have a bit of that because i think one of my favorite lines from this book so far is talking about taboos and traditions and how those are the veils that of, of, of ideas that allows them to invade the world which is true but i think it's potentially true in or it, it can really be true in an incarnational sense rather than in a symbolic sense so he he has there's less potential for ideas actually being in the world incarnate in weaver's yeah. view in his in his metaphysics than in someone like mcgilchrist yeah i think that's especially true like you're talking about his religion and this is his wikipedia i mean just just to cite my source but he was an advocate of a non-creedal faith he was like a, he was a non-practicing protestant who advocated for the south's old religiousness so he liked the the established anglican slash episcopal church of the south for its established um properties mm-hmm. not necessarily the creedal incarnate properties of um christianity that that lines up perfectly with what with your um diagnosis uh, actually just sorry brief aside anglican episcopalian was big in the south i thought that was primarily baptist later no oh, oh no virginia oh, no um even even um into brevin correct me if i'm wrong but even into like early american like constitutional republic virginia had an established religion i, I was not aware yes i yes i believe that's correct it was episcopalian yeah so weaver was in essence a fan of the episcopal anglican church primarily for the ideas they're bringing to the table not necessarily the truth content of their religion but rather they at least have some sort of ethical standard. They have some ideal that they can hold people to. What was the cultural standard is like, is it's a very high, it's a very proper religion. And so the South, like these, these wealthy landowners were overwhelmingly like very proper Episcopalians. And there was that certain like aesthetic that appealed to Weaver. I see. Okay. 
Yeah, it is fascinating how the theological context really sets the philosophical context and also sort of your level of expectation for what can happen in the world and the the outer limits of your philosophy. Because really, I don't know, Weaver is, I mean, push back if you think that I'm wrong, but kind of in the imminent frame, but knocking on the wall and and saying that there's something on the other side of it. Um, mm-hmm. But there, there's no possibility. Well, maybe that's uh, not entirely I, fair. If I'm reading Weaver right, which is very possible, I'm not, It's he's not necessarily knocking on it and trying to break through. It's more he's knocking on it and trying to paint some really pretty pictures on the walls of the imminent frame and trying yeah. to imagine what if, like, yes, we're in the imminent frame. Yes, there is nothing transcendent. But why don't we at least make, like, at least Anglican Episcopalian is, like, at least it makes these walls look really nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, but but exactly to that point of the walls, it's his, the limitations of the very brief sketch we have of his theological perspective means that there's no room to look up, really. There's, there's no real transcendent above mm-hmm. in a way well i'd say that yeah that would be primarily a function of his um uh nominal religion uh the fact that yeah, he doesn't actually take the truth content of his religion seriously yeah exactly so i mean yeah if you don't believe there is a god if you don't believe there is transcendent yeah you're just kind of ipso facto stuck in the imminent frame mm-hmm. and that's that's the same true that's the true thing here from you know 21st century back to ancient athens if you're an atheist um mm-hmm, although yeah. you might be a little bit more quiet about it but then herein comes, I think, one of our one of our critiques, which is, you know, his hatred of people who lack discipline is almost for discipline's sake, rather than discipline as something towards, uh, you know, theosis to just cut right to well, the chase. I mean, that just strikes me as kind of good old Protestant work ethic that's just kind of baked into the culture of Protestantism. You gotta gotta work hard. You gotta. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what came from that um, or where that exactly came from. But Weaver should probably just riffing on that. Maybe I've made the point and I'm pushing it, but the way that he he thinks in terms of civilization achievement seems dehumanizing to me. It it seems like it's it's reducing humans to a lot less than they could be. Interesting. I, I'm I'm not sure I necessarily agree, given that he is pushing an ideal of some kind. Um, he is saying that we need to get out of this. Uh, hang on, I wrote it down. Um, right. Uh, he did say something to you. We do need to break down, or there is a breakdown between what is and what is right, and he is pushing the what is right over what is. He is pushing this prescriptive over this descriptive, which I think is an important difference. Or yes. am, I, am I misunderstanding you? I, I think what I'm saying is that his, and you know, perhaps this is simply a, a taste thing that's unavoidable, uh, but his metrics for success just don't, they don't convince me. I, I, I don't think that that the the point where he's going, like, he doesn't want to build cathedrals because cathedrals are good and true he wants to build cathedrals because it's cool basically um not to i guess not to be too cute but the difference between i want to build a cathedral because it is true and i want to build a cathedral because instead of cool let's say it because it is beautiful that may be a little less distant than we might think uh something something solzhenitsyn and dostoevsky uh beauty will save the world um solzhenitsyn has that great statement that kind of when, when truth and goodness have have fallen by the wayside, beauties still may be able to kind of pull us back there. Um, and so it could be that he's saying, yeah, truth has fallen by the wayside, goodness has fallen by the wayside, but beauty still might be able to get us there. And in this case, I guess he's not really saying beautiful, he's not really relying on transcendentals necessarily, but he is more saying uh, this this ideal, this discipline, this he, he's trying to grasp for anything that will get us back on track. Now, whether or not that will actually get us back on track, 
I think you have a very good point in that, like, well, if you're taking a really crappy road to get back on track, it's it's very debatable. Even if it's pointing in the right direction, if it's a terrible road, you might not hit the road might break you before you actually get there. No, oh, no, this is precisely the, the point. You're you're right that he doesn't appeal to beauty as the reason for, for building a cathedral. Right in nestled in, in, in that whole passage is the line is the secret for success in this life is hope in the next. Success is the metric. And I'm sure that there's a, a, a nice way t- to twist that, but sort of the uh, the malaise, the this this aura that hovers over his this whole angle that he's thinking of these topics uh, that I come at from a very different angle. Uh, I it, it 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 makes me not want to get on on board his train. Hmm. Yeah, I there there is something interesting about kind of the, the, the instrumentalizing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's you are you are taking this belief in the afterlife or belief in the life to come or the age to come or what have you, and you're saying this has good utility. Therefore, we should propagate it. We, like, forget if it's true. It's just we are using it for. Okay, yeah. It, it, the metric being success in this life as the reason for having a belief regardless of truth content is a little, I mean, yeah, that's not great. I mean, there's, no, a, not even there's a, a long, that idea has a long history in American religious thought or at least civil religious thought. I mean, I'm thinking George Washington as a primary proponent of that kind of idea. He didn't, I mean, he's a pretty, pretty strong deist or he was very, he's private about his religion. We can suppose that he was probably a deist quietly attending his Anglican church. Um, but he he was very adamant that chaplains must be provided for the troops and they must pray before the meeting of Congress, um, which is that it's that same idea of like the instrumental idea um, needs of religion, which I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm split on that. On one hand, I would say it's, so that's sacrilege. It's offensive to me as somebody who, who truly believes this stuff. And on the other perspective, I'm like, well, okay, but is that worse? than, you know, outright violent progressivism or, you know, or, or something that actively want, wants to stop me. I don't know. I, that's, that's a question in my head that I don't have an answer to. No, I'm right there with you. There's something kind of irritatingly uh, patronizing about it. This like, oh, sure. It has some like your beliefs. They can make people's lives a lot better. It's like, okay, thanks. I, I appreciate it. No, th- thank you for that. Um. Well, on the other hand, it could be that they're making people's lives better because they're objectively true. And therefore, like, I don't know, why why find a good thing? However, if that becomes the, the general zeitgeist, if that becomes the, the overall impression, which it has in America, then people do, like, people start saying, well, look, the only reason we've been praying in Congress is because people just have this kind of vague idea that is good for us. Why are we even doing it? And that maybe in the long run will have it actually caused more harm than good. It will actually have sabotaged mm. the Christian mission. If, if Stephen didn't add that, that last sentence there, he was like a, a, just the smallest half step from becoming a corporate consultant on how to ritualize and bring liturgy into your daily nice. uh, meetings. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, I think we can sort of summarize perhaps his whole perspective on, on this thing uh, by hearkening back not to the American Republic, but the Republic Republic and the noble lie. And that is sort of a fu- that's the function that these transcendentals so- seem to f- to fill for Weaver at least in 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 some sense. Yeah, just to emphasize he being Weaver, not Stephen. That's not that's not what I'm going <laughs> for. <laughs> yeah, there's uh. So let's see, there are other things that, that we could talk about here. Um, the Cold War thing is a fun flash forward. We could talk about political control, um, coming from you know the idea of purpose, and the pandemic is perhaps one place where we've seen people finding a lot of purpose from uh, lockdowns and masks and and the power and the sense of direction that that gives them when they feel otherwise lost. Um, uh, any other just like quick things to throw out here? 
Okay. okay. Real quick riff on um he he brought up the whole descriptive prescriptive what is versus what is right and that did make me think of um Roger Scruton's uh discussion on artwork as going transitioning from let us let us show what is beautiful and that will encourage us to become uh, better to let us just show what is reality um and there and therefore paintings becoming more and more horrifying and the apologetic is all well this is just i'm just showing how reality is and it's like okay but you're missing the point you're not supposed to show us necessarily what reality is but rather what reality should be um and i, I thought weaver was well well put in uh in coming out from that angle as it were yeah i mean this is maybe way too far of a of a um tangent so cut this if you want but you know in the first couple of pages of chapter seven he he attacks hysterical optimism i mean very aggressively like this is the worst sin and it is absolutely i mean it is causing us to be unable to see like any kind of virtue but then i don't know by the end of chapter seven he seems i, I think that we've uncovered this vein of very strong optimism in him almost misplaced optimism in like private property and just just being able to help us arrive at virtue and even misplaced optimism in virtue itself for being able to turn our society around without an, a semblance of incarnational truths so yeah i don't know i mean it's, it's kind of it's kind of ironic that for somebody who is so critical of optimism he has this very optimistic undertone to his arguments even though it doesn't sound that way on first read i'm i'm with you there it's especially just the idea that private property like really that's that's the thing that's going to pull us out of the out of the spiral that's what you chose as your flagship i on the whole his his optimism i wonder if he's trying to keep from being what he said that he was at the very beginning of the book just another book about the decline of the west i wonder if he's trying to say but there are options i'm not just doom and gloom i'm not just saying oh look how bad the world is and this is why it's all going to pot i wonder if he's at least trying to be constructive in a, a particular culture where destructive books or books decrying the the fall of the west are just becoming more and more common and so i wonder if that he's trying to kind of set himself apart from that yeah i think that's i think that's the case well we can agree that he i mean he, he's unable to break the imminent frame due to his cultural religious ideas but you know what does make the imminent break you know what does break the imminent frame is mysticism and you know what mystics say god is our mother stephen indeed indeed oh gunger <laughs> what a guy and related to gunger <laughs> is making edgy statements about the nature of God. Do you want to know a great thing that I heard about mystics? And I feel maybe one of you guys said this, but mystics don't call themselves mystics. You get called by other people a mystic. If you call yourself a mystic, you're a bad person. You should not do that. No, that was somebody tweeting in response to Michael Gunger calling himself a mystic. Great. And the person okay. said, you know, that's really a title that's bestowed onto you after years and years of your own suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> Apparently, there's anyway. uh, there's some story that's floating around orthodoxy of uh, some some like theology prof who uh, went to go hang out with some monks and they asked him what he you know what he did for a living. He's like, oh, I'm a theologian. And one of them turned to the other and it's like, oh my gosh, we're in the presence of one of the new theologians of five in all of, all of history. And the the guy got very embarrassed very fast. <laughs> um, but uh, so one such uh eminent uh, theologian, uh, Father Thomas Reese, former editor-in-chief of American Magazine, and now senior analyst for Religious News Service, which is surely a uh, eminent uh, chaired sit-in, uh, recently promoted an essay saying uh, that God's preferred pronouns are in fact they. Uh, and this is a rather short article, article in First Things, and they pretty much go over 
his basic arguments um, that any sophomore theology student has thought of in their head that God is not actually a human male who will take uh, Jesus out of the equation for just a hot sec, um, that God is spirit, he doesn't have a body, obviously, yeah, that you know he, him, his are not actually, they're anthropomorphisms, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and this article goes in and discusses- Sorry, pause for a second. And yes. dear listener, this article is called Why We Call God Our Father by C.C. Pecknold in First Things. Oh, yes. Thank you, Brevin. He, the, the author uh, does a C.C. Pecknold, catch that, uh, does a very strange move, though. Uh, one that I was actually surprised with. He kind of hops in bed with Feuerbach. Uh, Feuerbach, who, uh, a great atheist writer, who pretty much said that all religion is uh, really just anthropology. That the things we say about God, we are actually saying about our culture or ourselves. And so the civilization that called God their father was clearly saying something interesting about themselves. But when we transition to saying things more gender neutral, as in God is they them there, the God is our parents or what have you, uh, that is saying something about the cultural transition that we are, we are going for, which I'm not entirely opposed to this move. It's actually a pretty clever move, but it is really, it's a very bold move hopping in bed that fast with a pretty heavy cr uh, critic of religion, of the religion that you are a part of. Uh, but in any case, the real rejoinder that this gives is uh, via Thomas Aquinas, uh, saying that much like uh, God is not a metaphor for goodness, goodness is a metaphor for God, that what we call good, we are actually striving for God. In classical theism, God does not exist. He is capital E existence. God is not good. He is capital G good. Um, in a similar way, he says uh, that fatherhood is analogous to God. God is our father means that our earthly fathers are not, we are not saying God is a father metaphor. We know our relationships with our fathers. Therefore, we can kind of project that onto God, the father, but rather God is fatherhood itself. And that our fathers are but dim reflections of the true father. Uh, and I mean, that, that's, that's the gist of the, of the, of the, Maybe you guys will uh, can can expand upon it if you think I'm doing it uh, injustice. I'm actually well. Well, I do personally think that we should continue calling God our Father. It's been it's been that way for two thousand years. And yes, Brevin, I can see you smirking through your uh, your closed camera. But tradition is very important, and um, the idea that we're going to ca cast aside the primary metaphor for God th that has been throughout Judeo Christian history, we're going to toss it aside because the last ten years have taught us more about theology than 2,000 years of tradition. That strikes me as completely ridiculous. However, I'm actually not a huge fan of this argument. I think it, first of all, does mothers a massive disservice. Um, so what, fathers get to be the image of God, but mothers don't be? The rejoinder that one might be able to make is, well, what about Mary? She is the Theotoka. She is the, the mother of God. I uh, cannot mothers reflect that, but classical theism, so, sorry, Mary is not existence. She exists. Mary is not goodness. She is good. Um, she derives all from God. So I, I don't think that would be a very safe rejoinder to make. Um, and just in, in general, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit more comfortable with saying that God is our father is a metaphor. Um, that is a metaphor that is more of an anthropomorphization. However, that doesn't mean it's not a useful metaphor. All metaphors are useful. Some are, are wrong. Some are useful. Um, no. <laughs> Uh, so that, that, that's the main reason I brought this article. I, I thought it was an uh, instantiation of I agree with the author's conclusion, but disagree with the way he got there. It's a great statement, Brevin. Stephen, I feel like you only read half of this article. 
because you missed like the entire main point or you, you didn't summarize the entire main point and you also misunderstood the Farabach, uh comparison the to the extent that you he tell. uses Farabach, he's simply saying that Farabach has observed what appears to be a true thing it's like agreeing with Farabach that the sky appears to be blue it's like oh yes i am I, i'm now lumped in with Farabach. it's like no no he's saying that uh that the people making the god is our mother argument are in bed with with Farabach. and Farabach is correct in as much as he observes that the words that we use for god also correspond to things in our real world and are derived from them originally now, so you're not wrong. I would say that just makes it ad hominem. Like, congratulations, you said something interesting about them, but you haven't said anything the value of their statement. Uh, sh sure. Uh, so let's get into the, the the actual meat of of the argument, which is um, talking about what Aquinas's path to justifying fatherhood. And there are two steps that are important. The first is clarifying uh, the difference between metaphor and analogy. So the metaphor that Stephen is is talking about goes from father to God. God is the, uh, to, to, if, if we understand, understand God as metaphorically our father, God is like a father to us as in our fathers are to us in reality. Uh, but St. Thomas's path is through analogy, which is both, uh, just reading from the article, that, a mirror that reflects both similarity and dissimilarity. And the way that you sort of move past that is you take the words that are similar in some ways, but also dissimilar in others, and you purify them. This is the the, the part that that's important that that makes um, the words more true to God is the things that fathers are to us that our earthly fathers are that God is not, and the things that are that is correct in or that is the same in the relationship. And you remove the dross, keep what remains, and you have a true divine name or something closer to a divine name that accurately corresponds in your understanding with who God is in in as much as that that word uh, has its meaning and that in his argument avoids confusing the creator with the creation and one can merely think of anecdotes where saying you know god is our father is instantly for lack of a better word triggering for people due to their own experiences with their father is that there's no purification of that in a metaphor um god the father is not then a, a metaphorical statement but it is a literal statement of the purified name or of the purified father uh and and then the final point that he makes which is sort of the argument from tradition which is that um the proper names for god are the names that god re reveals to us himself uh and that um that's what jesus calls god there are other names revealed in various scriptures for god um or terms or references or titles and those are the ones that that we should use and so purifying those is always necessary uh you know prince of peace jesus is not a literal prince we the, the the parts of prince that are analogically correct have to be purified out and some parts of that will stay some parts of it will leave but that's what it is and i do think that this is a better and more nuanced way than falling into the metaphorical category which then becomes very vulnerable to the um uh the, the conforming to the fashions of the world yeah i mean i i i think i i like this article a lot and i think that i mean i think i, I like the, the second argument that the, the argument from tradition more. I mean, just the argument that, look, we have two proper names for God, really. I mean, there are lots of names for God, but two are the most proper. In the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. In the New Testament, it's Father. And that was a very intentional move by Christ to refer to God as Father. And so therefore, in tradition, we should follow in that. And I think that's a great argument. I mean, I think that that, that alone should be a, a case-closed reason um, to continue to do so. 
but I guess if you don't care about tradition, then it's moot. Though, um, one question is, I guess, is it okay to take the tradition and ground yourself in that and say, yes, in tradition, we should call him father and, and, and take the analogy that all human fathers are just an analogy for, or are, are, are derive their fatherness from God. We take that as true. Can we then in good faith also use metaphor to deepen or to, inc- I, I don't know, think about, dwell on, meditate on the nature of God. For example, as um, you know, the, the mystics Julian of, Nor- like Julian of Norwich does, right? God, our mother, she's grounded in an orthodox understanding of what the nature of God is and the tradition of, of calling God father. She's using that not to label God as mother, but rather to um, as, as a metaphor to bring out more characteristics that are already there within God. I mean, nothing that she's saying there is contrary to God. And maybe this is really controversial. So you it gets better shoot me down for this. But um, what if this author, this blogger, talking about referring to God as as they, though his reasoning is bad, I think, the, the idea of just the attrition is inherently misogynistic. What if the using of they does get at the ineffable um, inclusivity, allness of God that may speak to a certain interpretation or a certain feeling, even if that feeling, wherever that feeling is coming from, whether it be mental illness or disorder, even there, God can speak to it in his nature. Is that crazy? Or I guess, go for it. I'm intrigued by, I see, I, I think I primarily don't have, theologically, I do not have necessarily a problem with they, them for God, just given that God has no gender. Again, footnote, Christ has a gender, Christ is male, Christ is God. But then you get whole into Trinitarian theology and things get very thorny. So let's just stick with classical theism for now. So I have no theological issue necessarily. I think more just culturally in keeping with the zeitgeist, I have an issue with baptizing, uh, that sort of thing. I, I'm not sure if it's necessarily something I want to get on board with. That it, it slash I want something that can start getting a foothold within the Christian tradition. However, there, I mean, there is something to be said for, yes, even if you are struggling with this even if this is something that you feel alienated from god is here and god understands and god actually is gender neutral um so i think there's something to be said for that however i am more inclined to say i i'd rather i i'm i'm skeptical about it but i think i would just fall back to i'm skeptical for it from it not from a theological perspective but more just from a traditional perspective which in some cases some people may be a lot more receptive to than others um to rejoinder brevin's point Yes, purification of particular concepts, for example, goodness, even our own dimly understood viewpoint of goodness, uh, it is not proper to apply that to God, but rather that concept needs to be purified as goodness is, or God is goodness, it comes to us, and we need to understand that that is going to need to be, that our concept of goodness is not necessarily uh, the exact concept of God just because we are we are fallen, we we see through a a glass dimly, as it were. However, I would say that primarily applies to transcendentals, and fatherhood is not a transcendental. Um, uh, truth, goodness, beauty, justice, etc. Uh, fatherhood it derives its meaning from those, not the other way. Or it is it is not an atomic unit in and of itself. I think this responds to both of your uh, to, to to both the cases that you made. One to the to only applying to transcendentals. I would would allow some fuzziness in terms of personal devotion and uh, not. I won't say re- revelation, um, but you know, I will 
say that there is somewhat of a distinction between private between your own private practice and what you uh, attempt to propagate or institutionalize. So I will allow some some fuzziness on the side. Um, Catholicism is nothing if not uh, just a, just a wee bit uh, uh, syncretic. So allowing for that, the difference between father and mother and they and them is that there is a um, a divide, let's say, between God and us in as far as we have perfect communication. And when words such as mother and they are shot upwards from us, as it were, they carry with it our intention and connotation and our baggage attached to those names. The only, the thing that is di distinct is that father is the name that has been handed down if we take our other beliefs seriously. Father is the name that God has. Uh, Even you were muted when you said that, whatever it was. Yeah, I, I know. I was going to let Brevin finish, but that that's tradition. That is not transcendental. I don't well, know. I mean, I, I see what Brevin's saying. Is that it is from Christ, right? Christ first God as Father. Certainly, certainly, and I would say, yeah, Christ gave it to us, and therefore, uh, perhaps I should, I should uh, clarify Father my statement. Father is the name of God as as given by by sure. Christ, and, and and there are many names for God in Scripture that are not transcendentals, and all of those are analogies that require purification. I I I don't understand the um, but the 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 point is to the mother argument is simply that. If there is a categorical difference in between God as father and God as mother due to the direction from which that was handed yeah. down, as opposed to it being developed down here. Now, if you believe that father was developed from this side and then shot upwards, as it were, um, you know, then you have to go against a lot of, of other scripture, in, in which case I'm not, I, you know, this hypothetical person is not having a conversation with me at all. Yeah, I think that I think that that gets difficult because you're the same planks that support, you know, God handing. I mean, the same planks that support God handing down His nature as Father to us are through the words of Christ. The words of Christ are also the ones that say that Himself is the Son of God. So, if we're going to neglect the, if we're going to say, well, Father's just tradition, then you also have to say. Son of God is just tradition, and at that point, well, then why are then, then Christianity? No why why are you here? Do you even go here? Do you even go to Christian? <laughs> Doesn't even go here, guys. Um, what would you say, Brevin, about uh, the non-trivial amount of metaphors for God that are scriptural um, uh, for God as mother? Uh, Christ uh, comparing himself to a chick gathering her, or to a hen gathering her chicks under her wing. Um, the multitude amount of uh, analogies of wisdom, uh, which the church fathers interpret it as uh, being the Holy Spirit, uh, being a female. Mm -hmm. um, that I mean, that seems to be ostensibly handed down to us from high. And so there is maybe not mother granted nece necessarily, but still a femininity. No, uh, no, no. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not denying femininity or, 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 or even the, uh, a purified version of motherhood. As, as an aspect of God, it's merely the name "mother" is is uh, is not uh, is not appropriate. Hmm. God, uh, uh, so, you can okay, take so, God the Father in his in his sustaining, nurturing nature. Yeah, so, and like, that's and say, that, that's scriptural. That, yeah, yeah. When when so 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 let's just say for sake of argument that God has you know he exhibits both fatherhood and motherhood. When we purify those, we see what we're talking about are specific aspects of like what parenthood provides nurturing protection uh direction discipline things like that and that's that's perfectly fine you know chicks gathering under the wing sure yeah that's that, that is you know one once that is, is purified but god did not say my name is you know chicken who okay. gathers chicks under, under, under wings there's a distinction there right and i'm totally fine with leaning into that 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 is 
simply just an argument from tradition, like, look, God gave us this name and therefore we're not deviating from it. Sorry. That's that's not a theological argument. Well, it's a theological argument in, in, only insofar as it is arguing from scripture and from tradition, but it is not arguing, like, it, it is not a natural theological argument. It, um, whereas something like God being goodness itself is a natural theology, uh, or that is a natural theological uh, natural theological move, not a traditional one. Whereas, look, we know from scripture, God called himself father. Therefore, we're going to call him father. That's a, that's a scriptural, traditional argument. Sure, yeah, do, you see, that, do you see I the distinction I'm trying to, to draw? I mean, I, 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 do, see, I see the distinction between transcendentals and specific names of God. I don't see how that's relevant. Uh, I think I am trying to say that I'm, I guess I'm more comfortable with if it's traditional or scriptural saying it's probably a little bit more God is trying to give us an analogy that will allow better. Not this is a there is a transcendental fatherhood that somehow motherhood doesn't quite land. I, I think I find this more just uh, slightly repulsive, just given that it really screws over mothers and that they don't get to that fathers are somehow taking part in godhood, but mothers are not. Um, or uh, it, uh, in in the same way that when you are you, when you are being good, when you do a good thing, you are taking part. You, you are being godly. You are. Uh, you are attaining theosis because you are becoming that which you are supposed to. You are becoming close to God because God is goodness. So when a father is a father, uh, that means that he is closer to Godhood. When a mother is a mother, she doesn't get that because of her gender. That just strikes me as a little silly. And so I'm a lot more comfortable just saying, well, yeah, because it's an analogy. Um, and analogies will eventually break down. That doesn't mean that there's something transcendental about fathers rather than mothers, other than the, the thing that everything is transcendental in that well everything derives from transcendentals so I, it is good to be a father it is good to be a mother because and goodness is the transcendental from which fathers and mother or fatherhood and motherhood derives from i think your your objection dissolves if you understand if, if the um fatherhood and motherhood as concepts are perfectly al allowable but the mere name is is a related but distinct mm -hmm. issue yeah, I mean, I also I think that what we're running up against, and this is going to open a way bigger question that we, it's it's almost ten o'clock at night, guys. But yeah. um, the other question that we're running up against is the east-west um, divide on the on the relationship between tradition and scripture, and even even more, I mean, Catholic Orthodox versus Protestant. Is is I would say, scripture is is not necessarily distinct from, but definitely primary to the. Um, theological or the traditional truths and so you can extrapolate a great deal of this god's innate goodness for example from um, the letters of saint john right i think that you can make a very easy argument um about that so like a lot of these things that we're saying oh this comes from tradition well you, you can really pull a lot of that out of scripture yeah. um and at that point we can't really debate about that that's i think that's i think a line of the arguments uh following along but we cannot yeah respond. i i'd also throw one thing just um because i forgot to mention it and and on the uh, whole uh sophia wisdom being female that's i think traditionally you know that's an accurate thing that, that that's how it's been portrayed but i do not believe at least not in the catholic tradition that Sophia is in any way the equivalent of the Holy Spirit. That's a different thing. Uh, uh, asserting that the that the like the the gender of the Holy Spirit is is female gets into a, a very weird thing with the Trinitarian. Then we get to the the, the shack. The, the yes. Then we get to the shack. That's, um, yeah. No one wants to get there. Uh, it's, okay. So I guess no I one wants to go to the shack. An <laughs> interpretation is Sophia is a stand-in for the Holy Spirit. That is an interpretation. I don't think any. I guess I should be more careful with saying that. It is an interpretation that some of the church fathers leaned into, but very like 
very clearly speaking in mystical metaphor, not yes. saying, yep, this is definitely the Holy Spirit. Um, the, yes, the, the whatever femininity wisdom has is in no way related to the name God the Father. Uh, there's, there's, there's no um, connection on the uh, gendered spectrum that it, it, it's two different things. Yes, that's all. Well, is it, I mean, but Stephen, also in the Greek, um, in the Greek liturgy, it, I mean, don't you refer to scripture and or like where is it? It, it is there is wisdom. Let us attend, right? Um, Isn't that part of the Orthodox yes. liturgy? Um, and more likely than not, the Greek would be Sophia. Although, Sophia, yeah, yeah, I go, started going to a Greek Orthodox church, but um, they they still call out wisdom instead of Sophia. Um, but even then, it's, ha, ha, hmm. so I'm sympathetic with Brevin's points, although I would still say that that is attributing, if we are to go with that interpretation, which again, it's a metaphor, which I'll recall, I'm fine with that. It is still attributing feminine aspects to godliness, um, or saying that there are more traditionally feminine aspects of God. No, um, yes, this is, this is, I, I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is, is, is that the relationship between feminine and masculine in the, and the implication of a family unit in, in the Trinity, that's that's what I'm objecting to. Oh, uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'm not trying to say that there's any, like, strange romance or f familial or, well, I guess there is a familial, like, as far as father and then, yeah. God, you know, just that masculine the is, is not, not the father, feminine or... is not the Holy Spirit, and Jesus yeah. is there. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, we're not. And we're not love child, right? That's, yeah, that's we're not, not doing the... that. Yeah. We're, we're not becoming Episcopalians. <laughs> Shots fired. Uh... Like Weaver. <laughs> um, okay, we should wrap this up. Yeah, yeah, we should. All right. Well, I I, I feel like I got a little a, a little heated there. And when one is heated, uh, one rants. Sam, what do you got? Um, I didn't prepare a rant, so I'm going to use this time to harken back to our conversation before the podcast. If any of our listeners have not listened to Christianity Today's excellent, far greater podcast series than this one Excuse on me. the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church, go listen to it. It's 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 everywhere. Thinking. Everybody's talking about it. You've probably listened to it already. I am continually impressed with their even-handed and insightful, um, I guess, this history of what happened in this one institution and how that relates to um, the the greater church overall. I think it's a great. I think it's it's good for wherever you're coming from, whether Christian, non-Christian, Catholic, Orthodox, um, mainline Protestant, Evangelical, fundamentalist. I don't care. Listen to it. It will it, it will be good for you. Uh, so I have a friend who, uh, her whole family went to uh, uh, my church um, the, at St. Catharines, and they attended Marcel for a number of years. Surprisingly fond memories. I remember asking her, like, oh my gosh, like, what happened? She's like, I don't know, I went to the youth group, and it was fine, we left before things kind of blew up. No, that is pretty, yeah. like, p part of the whole Christianity Today angle is just that, like, this was really good, actually, for a lot of people. Some people got really burned, some people had really good experiences. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. just that. Yeah. I really do need to give that a listen. Yes, you do. You do. Uh, well, speaking of listening, I, 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 I would like to give one of my professors a freaking earful. So I had so there was presentation last Friday uh, that's like this this just like a five minute long thing, and then we take like you know ten minutes of of comments on our on our projects. It's a group project, but I had a wedding out of town, so I told her at the beginning of the year, I have a wedding. I'm not going to be here. I will work with my teammates to make sure I do extra work. I'll make up for it elsewhere. And she was like, great, that sounds good. So then I email her like a week before the presentation. I'm like, hey, just reminding you, I'm not going to be in class on, on Friday. I'm at a wedding. My teammates are going to handle it. I, I've talked to them. It's all cool. And my teammates were excellent. Like they're just like the absolute chillest guys. You know, they're like, 
I'm like, hey, I, you know, I can do extra work. Like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just go to your wedding. We, we wish that we had weddings that we could go to. Um, and uh, we'll take care of it. Uh, but then my, the professor responds to my email. And not only does she say that the questions and uh, that I had offered to send to each of the groups to provide my comments, uh, not only do I have to send it to the entire class so that the entire class can see my comments, but also that I should let her know uh, the schedule of the wedding uh, because I should call in for my group's presentation. And uh, but that don't worry, she will uh, time it so that I can make sure that our group's presentation doesn't overlap with the vows so that I can actually still hear the vows while uh, attending this wedding of mine, which is just the absolute most disconnected from reality thing. Like I, 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 I still lack for words at like the lack of empathy and self-awareness that this, that this woman apparently has. There's literally no excuse for this. There's zero justification for this policy. You cannot appeal to the fact that it matters. It doesn't matter. You could record this. This, this entire thing could be conducted over email and have the same effect. Saying that it's reflecting of the real world also doesn't work. Uh, one, you could definitely go to a wedding and like say, hey, coworker, give this presentation. There's like very few things that are that high stakes. And even if they were that high stakes, I wouldn't have that job because that would be a stupid job where I like couldn't see my family to give a five minute presentation on a Friday evening. So anyway, I, it's, I'm still not over this. I had to take the call out in like the mud and just barely got back inside before it rained. I was basically in, in a St. Louis cornfield for the purpose of the call. I, I said one thing. It was a completely pointless exercise. Uh, Steven, what do you got? Well, uh, similar to your professor, I have had an encounter with the devil. Geico. Uh, the devil takes the form of a, a cute little lizard that will save you 15% or more on car insurance, which, nota bene, that is an absolutely vacuous statement. May save you 15% or more. Means nothing. You could save zero, you could lose money, and that statement would still be technically true. I am certain that Beelzebub himself could not have conjured horrors greater than this stupid lizard company. Even the blind idiot god as a thought that amorphous blight of nethermost confusion which blasphemes and bubbles at the center of all infinity has more grace, intelligence, and decency than this infernal entity of insurance. The frightful soul and messenger of the infinity's other gods, the crawling chaos near Lathotep, would be more unpleasant to deal with than these cretinous bureaucrats. Screwtape himself, upon witnessing Geico's treatments of humans, uh, would immediately see the error of his ways and become a born-again fundamentalist Christian along with Wormwood and his entire family. I got rear-ended a few weeks ago. It was, you know, thankfully no one was hurt. I was standing still in traffic and the person behind me, more likely than not, on her phone, uh, just gave me a gave me a little love tap and I uh, dented up my uh, bumper quite a lot. Of course, her car was untouched. Um, and so I call up insurance like, hey, Michigan's no fault and, I'll, you know, bite the bullet, get this over with. I am on hold for an hour. And eventually, after being told about 50 times to go check their website, I finally do. And I go and... Uh, you know, put in my claim via their website or whatever. Um, and then I, I selected because I wasn't aware because I've lived in Washington for, for, for the past five years. I was like, well, the other driver insurance should pay, surely. And uh, then I realized that that means they just disregard the whole thing. And they're like, okay, we'll talk with them. And, uh, you know, I was under the impression that they might actually do some work and talk with the other drivers insurance company, but God forbid. Um, so I, uh, I then tried to talk to an insurance agent um, and uh, waited again for an hour. Uh, and then I, uh, I, I looked up, uh, you know, the numbers for some local agents and uh, called them and it put me in the same exact hour plus long queue. Uh, and then I got an email that said, hey, it looks like you have a new address. You need to update it on your profile. It may impact your race, to which I tried. It said I needed to take a talk to an agent 
And then when I called the number they gave me, it put me in the same hour plus long queue. And that queue had the goal, the audacity, the brass to tell me to use their website instead. Geico is an awful, awful company. Do not ever buy their insurance because they will just jerk you around for several hours and you'll go and you'll just go end up paying out of pocket which is what I had to do. So screw you, Geico. I am going to find another insur uh, insurance agency and they're hopefully going to treat me a little bit better. The, 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 the lizard is the devil himself. We're honestly might be nice. somewhere other than Geico here. We're on Geico too, but we'll see for how long. Uh, yes, but that's, that's incredible. Uh, your, your next Call of Cthulhu campaign should just be navigating, uh, putting a, a claim through. Yep. It's, it's actually just a new, it, it's just a Kafka novel except statement of you blinked out there. It's just yeah, you, a Kafka you, novel that. Oh, it's just a Kafka novel that I copied down and just replaced like government agency with Geico. Yeah, pretty much. Jeez. I there 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 is something almost like like ex, existentially slimy about this person showing up and saying, "Hey, so you want to avoid the consequences of fate? Buy insurance." And it's just you know, it, it, it's it's like a tempting tempting the gods uh, by making you know a. Uh, dark pact or whatever uh, absolutely with, yeah yeah anyway. what else is insurance other than a dark pact with some elder gods that you can only hope use their decisions you just really hope that you'll never roll a one yeah or... i mean did i did i ever tell you guys about how i spent a good like half hour of every day on my honeymoon on the phone with insurance trying to get medication shipped and they only got they eventually got to me granted two weeks late which <laughs> because i was also moving <laughs> So yeah, insurance is awesome. Actually, with insurance, that was especially pharmacy. But all this, this whole system, this conspiracy it's is it's, terrible. It, it's it's the manager character of McIntyre mm. uh, come here to, to to curse us all. Well, I believe that wraps up this episode. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen, and I'm Sam. And uh, my advice to you: don't buy insurance for anything, especially Geico.